y'all would follow with me uh, through the rest of Mark chapter 6 as I read, starting at verse 30, we'll read through 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. For when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go in the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. While he dismissed the crowd, excuse me. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out to the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when, they, and when he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out. For all they saw him were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moved and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard the, he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched were made well. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing to be together. We thank you for your word and the way you feed us uh, day in and day out. God, we pray that you would bless these moments uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, and that you would feed us in the ways that we need most. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. One of our Wednesday nights here recently this fall, uh, I told a story that came from the book we were studying uh, called Chasing What Matters, and it's about a song uh, that was written. And the first part of it was written on June 5th, 1965, uh, after a major concert, a guy named Keith Richards uh, had one line of a, of a new song uh, going around in his head and one catchy guitar riff. And so it was late at night, and that's about as far as he could get was that one line and this one little guitar part. And so he pulled out a, a cassette, record, a cassette you know, recorder thing. You remember those? Whatever it was. And, um, and started recording it, and he got that one guitar part and the one line in there and then fell asleep and proceeded to record another 45 minutes of himself snoring uh, after he recorded that part of the song. Well, his fellow band member, Mick Jagger, got a hold of that recording and uh, started adding to the song, uh, sitting by a pool one day. 
And within three weeks of the original snoring recording, uh, the Rolling Stones recorded and released one of the most famous rock songs of all time, Satisfied. The, little, the line that uh, Keith Richards had in his head was, I can't get no satisfaction. Perhaps the most famous double negative in the English language. You know, uh, The rest of that chorus that you know is now playing in your head, I can't get no satisfaction, I can't get no satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try. And you're, you're thankful, you don't know it, but you're thankful that I didn't try to sing that to you, because it would just ruin uh, the song that's playing in your head. So that song became the Rolling Stones' first number one song in the United States. It topped charts worldwide in 1965 and is uh, now on some all-time list, according to acclaimed music, whoever that is, as the fifth-ranked song, uh, according to that, you know, whoever that group is. So it's famous uh, because it's catchy. It's got this guitar riff that you kind of resonate with, but it's also the idea, isn't it? That, that idea of not being able to get the satisfaction we're looking for is, a, is an experience that so many people can relate to. When Keith Richards wrote it and Mick Jagger picked it up, they, they just knew that this was something so many people deal with. We can't get the satisfaction we're looking for, although we try and we try and we try. We have this deep desire in our hearts for, for joy and contentment and peace and, and for everything to work out and to be ah, just satisfied. And yet so often we're left wanting. And that's not a new feeling. Not just because this was written in 1965, but long before that. All the way back, at least to the days of Moses. Think of Moses, God showing up to Moses there in the desert, in the wilderness, calling uh, him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt because they're in slavery. They're not satisfied. They're captive to Pharaoh and to all of, of his, uh, to that nation, all they had to do for Egypt. And so God, through Moses, leads the people out of Israel, and he's promised them what? satisfaction in this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the way to get there wasn't easy. And on the way, they grumbled and complained. And so God, even in the middle of the desert, found a way to minister to them. One, at one point, they cry out to Moses, and they, they say, we'd rather go back to Egypt, even though there were slaves there, because at least we got to eat. <laughs> and the next day, as God and His grace provided for them, when the dew uh, evaporated off the land, they found this bread-like substance. And they said, what is it? Which in Hebrew is the word manna. So they called it manna. And they ate, what is it? <laughs> manna. For the next 40 years, God provided bread right there on the ground, graciously for His people in the desert. Because of their sin, they had to wander for that long, but God continued to provide miraculously bread for them out in the wilderness to help meet their needs. It was a daily reminder that the only way we're going to be satisfied, the only way that our needs are going to be met, not just physical, but emotional, spiritual, our deepest needs, the only way they're going to be met is supernaturally by God. All of our physical, spiritual, emotional desires, all the needs that we can sense in our heart are a daily reminder that God alone can meet our needs. God alone satisfies our hearts. After Moses came another leader named Joshua who led his people to the promised land. And for a little while they were satisfied, but then they fall away. Later on, King David comes and during King David's time, 
There's a time of peace and prosperity throughout the land, and for a little while they're satisfied, but then they turn away from God. Over and over again it happens where the earthly leaders are not enough. They, they don't get to the satisfaction that they're looking for. And so one prophet, this happens multiple times, but at one place, Ezekiel 34, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel and says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Earlier in that chapter, he says, I will feed them with good pasture. We deep in our souls know that no human leader, no man, no woman could ever feed us and satisfy us to the depth we need. We need God to be our shepherd. We need Him to provide for us. And I tell you all of that so you know what's going on when we get to Mark chapter 6. Jesus in a desolate place working an incredible miracle that has to do with bread. Has to do with bread. Our passage this morning starts when the disciples come back from their ministry out where they had gone and they report back to Jesus. Lots of great things that had happened, but they're all exhausted. They're tired. And so Jesus invites them to go away to a desolate place to rest. They're going to get away from the crowds. It says there were so many people around them, they, they couldn't even eat. And so Jesus gets on the boat and they begin to head to a different spot, not to a city, not to a town, just to a desolate, barren place so they can get some rest. However, people could see their boat out on the sea and people from all kinds of surrounding towns start figuring out where they're going to go and they're there on the shore waiting for Jesus and the disciples when they get there. Now, I want you to think about what you would feel like in that moment. Jesus has just invited you to a, a, a personal retreat with just Jesus. This is like some 12-on-1 time. You know, just a handful of people. You're there with Jesus and there's, the crowds are supposed to go away. Right? And now you're, you're going to a desolate place. I would feel, you may feel, frustrated, mad, sad, disappointed, overwhelmed, all the above. You know, That's how I'd feel. But Jesus, verse 34 says, When He went ashore and He saw a great crowd, He had compassion on them. An exhausted, tired man had compassion on them. It says because they were like a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed guidance. They needed direction. That word compassion is the word that's used so many times of Jesus and through His parables. Like in the Good Samaritan story, the Good Samaritan has compassion on the man who's in the ditch. The parable of the prodigal son, the father has compassion as the younger son is starting to return home. In both cases and in Jesus' case here, it's costly to show compassion. The Good Samaritan has to fork over money, has to risk his own life to help this man who's in the ditch. The father would have uh, given up all kinds of dignity to run out to his son and show compassion. And so here's Jesus in need of a break. And he gives up the break in order to show compassion on a crowd. That feeling of compassion is more than just pity. It's this being deeply moved to the gut, caring for somebody. To the point it leads you to action, to, to love somebody. And that's what Jesus showed to his people. It says because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was coming to fulfill what had been talked about from long, long ago. God Himself would be the shepherd of His people. And here is God in the flesh coming to shepherd His people. He leads them to a place, or he, as, he, as He brought the disciples over and He meets with this crowd, He is going to shepherd and lead and guide 
this group of people. And we all need that shepherd. We all need that shepherd. A shepherd is somebody who leads, directs, uh, protects, and importantly, feeds the sheep. So in verse 34, it says, When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them, because they're like a sheep without a shepherd. And it says, And he began to teach them many things. He's going to feed them, but he first teaches them with his words. He first feeds them with his words. That's how he feeds the sheep. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is there, and this happens over and over again in Mark, and we don't always get all the teachings that he says, but Jesus is shepherding. He's feeding by teaching. That's how he's caring for the people. But the disciples raise their hands and say, uh, there's also some physical needs here, Jesus. We've got to figure out what to do with this crowd. It's getting kind of late. Everybody's stomach's starting to rumble. What are we going to do? And so they say, hey, why don't we just send everybody back to their towns? They'll find a way to, to feed themselves. They can take care of it, Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. And we know from the end of the story here, there are 5,000 men here. So the disciples do some quick calculations, and they think, hey, about seven months worth of wages, Jesus, and yeah, we could feed it. You almost sense a little bit of anger, sarcasm, frustration in the disciples saying, how in the world are we going to be able to feed this many people? Jesus tells them to go and check what they had. The disciples, they had done some calculations about you know, how much it would take. They had forgotten that Jesus himself is incalculable. <laughs> you can't calculate his power. So he sends it back to count. They found five loaves, two fish. So maybe enough to feed you know, a handful of people, not a handful of thousands of people. But Jesus took what they had, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples who then were to give it out to different people. And they began to pass it out to one person, another person, passing it out, passing it out, passing it out. And after everybody had enough, there were 12 baskets left over. And this is the verse that, that got my attention probably more than any of this week. Verse 42, 42 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. Everybody got to eat. Everybody that had come to the shore to see Jesus got to eat. And they didn't just get a taste. They ate enough until they were satisfied. And many of us are like thinking about Thursday already, thinking about that meal. You, you know what it's like to be satisfied by a good meal. Like the one where you have to push back from the table a little bit, you know, you put your hands on your belly, and you're like, ah, that was a good meal. You know what I mean? And Thursday, Thanksgiving, maybe that's one of the days you're looking forward to to having a meal like that. Verse 44 says, And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So probably plus women and children will conservatively say 15,000 people from five loaves and two fish, all pushed back from the table, satisfied, full, content. They found it, and they found it in Jesus. That's, that's impressive. It's an impressive miracle. So impressive, in fact, it's the only miracle outside of Jesus' own resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This, this miracle got everybody's attention. We've got we to gotta make sure we write this one down every single time. Disciples saw this. This is a big deal. So see what I mean when I suggest the Rolling Stones were, were not the first people to recognize we all need satisfaction? Here's, here's the disciples, first Gospel writers, saying this story, this gets our attention. 
The only question we have, you know, different maybe from the Rolling Stones, is where, where are we going for our satisfaction? Where are we going? And the disciples, these first, this first crowd, they saw where it comes. The miracle, this miracle is an invitation for us to look to the shepherd for satisfaction. Look to the shepherd for satisfaction. Jesus is our compassionate, wise shepherd who can provide for our deepest needs, including our satisfaction. The Rolling Stones song is really about two things, materialism and sex, and how neither of those really fully satisfy. That's what they're, they're wrestling against our culture and the way that all the world tries to tell us these things will satisfy. And they're onto something because they're saying, this, I, just, I can't get satisfaction from this. The world so many times is trying to tell us, you, you, you can find satisfaction out here somewhere. But it just isn't true. Usually it's, it's in one of two ways it's, it's messed up, right? Either it's, it's telling you something will satisfy that's really just short term. It's short term. So maybe the, the vacation or a, you know, a f- nice meal or a new gadget, uh, a new toy, some kind of new car, whatever. It, it, it will, you'll think it'll satisfy you. But we know in the end it's foolish because the vacation ends. You, know, you get hungry just a few hours after you eat, even if it was a good meal. The, the new gadget, the new toy, the new car gets replaced by a newer one and you beat up the old one. You know, it just... It doesn't last. It's, it's short term. Or other times this world will, will focus on satisfying the wrong desires altogether. They'll say, hey, th- this will satisfy this desire, but the whole premise is wrong. Porn offers a satisfaction for lust. Drinking offers a satisfaction to, to, for a desire to escape. Being angry offers a satisfaction for feeling powerful and feeling like you've got control and telling people who's boss. When reality is those, those desires aren't even worth chasing. They're not even worth chasing. We don't, we don't really want lust. We want emotional and relational connection. We're just, we want to get rid of loneliness. We don't really want uh, to escape. We want to have purpose and meaning in life. Those are our desires. We, we don't really want power in and of ourselves. We want to know the Almighty and serve Him and be equipped and used for His, His glory. We, we want peace and contentment and joy and fulfillment and the shepherd is telling us those things can only be found in him, in him. All of our desires are a reminder that we need somebody and something outside of ourselves to fulfill that desire. But the world tries to put so many things in that place that will not satisfy. Either they're short-lived or they're aimed at the wrong thing altogether, but God alone satisfies And when Jesus, the good shepherd, sees that we need him, he meets that need. He comes, he has compassion, and he shows it to us, even if we're in the wilderness. You hear the connection back now to Moses' story. These are people in a desolate area. There's nothing around to help them. And he miraculously provides. Just like Moses did, or God did through Moses and for the Israelites there in the desert, so Jesus here is saying, Jesus is telling us He is God. He is God providing in the desert. Sometimes when we're in the wilderness, when things are hard, when things are challenging, we look around and say, there's just no way. We're calculating the cost. We're saying how much it would take in order to meet our needs. We're saying it's not possible. But we forget that Jesus is incalculable. We can't calculate His powers. He can meet our needs even in the desert. Can you search your own heart deep enough to know what you're really longing for, what you're really searching for in this world. 
we can stay busy, we can stay focused and chase so many things trying to satisfy our own hearts. But if we can slow down enough and look deeply enough in the mirror, we can say, this, what, what am I really chasing? What am I really after? And if you can answer that, you'll find out Jesus is the only one who can meet it. Jesus is the only one who can meet that desire. The disciples were immediately given another opportunity to see that, to be satisfied in Jesus. In the very next story, and they miss it. They miss it. As much as we, we may be familiar with these stories, don't miss how Jesus longs to satisfy you. Because I think the disciples were a little familiar now with Jesus, but they didn't understand what he was about. After feeding the multitude, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray and sends the disciples across the sea again on the, uh, in the boat. And it, again, it was, not, it was not easy sailing for them. The disciples, you remember back just a couple chapters ago, had been in a life-threatening storm. This wasn't that bad. They just were facing a headwind. The wind was just going the wrong direction. It made it hard to get where they were supposed to go. So we, we all know what that kind of struggle is like. We know what the storms in life are like. If a storm is like you get diagnosed with cancer. A headwind is like you got the flu. You know what I mean? This is what the disciples are facing. They got a, a struggle. You know, if, if, if a storm is bankruptcy, a headwind is you got some extra expenses that pop up or you got to pay for Christmas, you know, or whatever. These are, these are just the struggles or just the everyday life, everyday grind of life. Maybe sometimes in the storms you cry out for help because you're so desperate. But this is the, the headwind in life, the struggle, the daily grind in life that the disciples are facing. And then they still don't know where to turn for help. They still don't know where to look. Jesus has already calmed a storm, and he just fed thousands of people, and yet the disciples don't know what to do. They're clueless. Verse 48, from up on the mountain, Jesus could see that they're making headway painfully. And so he went out to them, just walking on the sea. He just goes to them because he's Jesus, and that's what he can do, you know. When disciples saw him, verse 49 and 50 say, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw him, and they were terrified. Jesus spoke to them to tell them not to be afraid, and he gets in the boat, and the wind stops. He solves everything, like he always does. He gets in the boat, and there's peace. But it says they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. The disciples, they, they don't get it. They, they miss what's going on. The same disciples who had just pushed back from the table and were satisfied and content in what Jesus had given them, are now confused and terrified and not sure what's going on. They missed Jesus. They missed what He was doing because they missed a chance to worship. They missed a chance to worship. Look, look more closely at what Jesus did. He, he walked on the water. Why, why would He do that? Well, Job 9.8, Job describes God this way. He says He's the one who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And the Greek version of that, of that verse says that God, speaking of God, that He walked on the sea like He walks on ground. Only God, the one who created the sea, can walk on it. So for Jesus to do this is for Him to clearly say, He's God. He is the creator of the universe. And He's right there. They can see him. He's right there. You know, there's, another, there's another strange line in this story. Verse 48, it says that Jesus meant to pass by them. Why, why would that be included here? 
Well, Exodus 33, Moses asked God to see his glory. And God puts Moses in the crack of a, a mountain and covers him with his hand and says that his glory passes by Moses. Well, this line's included because like God's glory passed in front of Moses, here's Jesus, the creator of everything, walking on the water and passing by. The glory of God is showing up on the, on the ocean, on the sea, and it's passing by the disciples. And there's one other Old Testament connection worth noticing. In verse 50, he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And when he says, it is I, literally it says, I am. Which is the same way that God himself spoke his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses said, well, who are you, God? I'm supposed to go save these people. Who are you? What's your name? And God just says, I am. Here's, here's Jesus, creator of all things, walking on the water, the glorious passing by the disciples, and he says, I am. What the disciples should have done right there is just worshipped, just celebrated how awesome it was to be in Jesus' presence. And yet they're so focused on the wind and their own lives and so many other things that they're just terrified and confused. They were just satisfied by him, and yet now they don't, they don't get it. They don't see him. It says their hearts were hardened. In verse 52, it says, For they didn't understand about the loaves. What do, what do the loaves have to do with Jesus walking on the water? Why would these two things be together? Again, this happens over and over again in Mark, right? He draws two stories together. I'll tell you why I believe Mark is doing that. When Jesus feeds the masses, he's saying that we find our ultimate satisfaction in him, right? And so now for the disciples to have that overnight experience, they have the chance to, be, to experience satisfaction again but not in eating bread, but in worshiping God Himself. Deep, deep in us, one of our deepest needs, one of the things we're so desperate for, is to be thrilled by something greater than ourselves. That's what we long for. We long for this satisfaction that's not just about eating a little bit or, or having a, you know, some interesting things to do or entertaining ourselves. We long to be so captivated by something grand and majestic. And the disciples had the greatest opportunity for that imaginable. And they missed it. How can we be satisfied in Jesus? I think this way. We can live in awe of His glory. That's how we are satisfied. We eat what He provides for us. We, we follow Him. We seek Him for our satisfaction. And then we live in awe of Him. We worship Him. Why, why do you think six million people a year go to the Grand Canyon? But why do 30 million people a year go see Niagara Falls? Do we just like holes and water? Like, why do we do that? I, I can dig you a hole. I can pour you some water. Every time so far I've turned on the faucet in my house, water comes out like, I can get you some water. Why do we do that? Because when we go to these things, we, we see something that's, that makes us go, whoa. Right? There's this awe factor, this majestic factor, this Wow, that is incredible. And it, and it hits this note deep in our hearts. It's, it's this, this part of our hearts that we just, we don't know why exactly, but we're so drawn to it. We're captivated by it. It's because our hearts were made to worship. Our hearts were made to go, wow, that's amazing. We don't go to the Grand Canyon just to, to be terrified, though we might fall and die, right? 
Jesus' disciples are in the boat and they're terrified. And what they should have been saying is, wow, that's amazing. You are incredible, God. And I praise you. Live in awe of His majesty and of His glory. That will satisfy you. Our deepest satisfaction comes in worship, not in living for ourselves. There are, are moments that, that you don't have control over where God's glory just breaks in. The question is, what do, you, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Like seeing Jesus on the water, standing before something beautiful in nature, the birth of a child, the powerful moment in, in God's Word, for a moment where you're filled in awe and wonder, and you're, up, you're just up close to something that's, that's beyond our, our world. How do, you, how do you respond to that? The disciples were terrified because they didn't get what was going on. They didn't, they didn't understand. But we, we've got a, the benefit of a little bit of distance. We know a little bit better what's happening. So we don't have to be filled with terror. Instead, we can, we can live in awe and wonder of who this Jesus is. We, we live in a very casual culture, and I'm, I'm usually appreciative of that. I don't, I don't like being formal. I don't like ties. I don't like, you know, being formal. But th- there is a danger, I think. In, in our, like our culture, the way this kind of swings back and forth, that we're really casual with God. That we just kind of stumble into His presence and say, yeah, what up, bud? You know? This is God that we are talking about. He deserves all our reverence and all, all the splendor that He has. It's, he is worth praising. You, you come here, many of you come here most weeks. You come in, into worship, and I, I love that we're casual. We have this opportunity, though, to enter into the throne room of God, to come and to sing. One of my favorite moments every week is standing here and singing with you, rejoicing in God, singing along with the band, and just being so drawn into this moment of praising God for who He is. That's that's what satisfies us, experiencing God and living for His praise. Live this week in awe of God's glory. That's where you'll be satisfied. The disciples missed it. The disciples were right there and they missed it. And in Mark 6 ends with a group who gets it. You see, we had this moment of satisfaction, the disciples who missed it, and there's almost this little tag-on section at the end that you kind of think, what? I don't really know what's going on with that. But I think what we're supposed to do is see how the disciples, they, they missed God's glory, but this group, they get it. They get it. Starting in verse 53, there's another time where Jesus and the disciples cross the lake, and guess who's waiting on them? But a crowd. Every time, the disciples like crisscrossing in Mark. They keep going over and over, all these different places in the lake. But the thing that always stays the same is there's a crowd waiting on them when they get there. That crowd usually does a little bit different things. This one is a group of people who is sick. It says uh, in verse 56, They implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. People were coming, wherever Jesus went, he went villages, cities, countryside, marketplaces, droves and droves of people, droves and droves of people were coming to him, and they were touching him and being made well. That happened in Mark chapter 5, the woman who had been sick with bleeding for 12 years and reached out and touched his garment. So I don't know if a word had spread about this is how Jesus could heal, but for whatever reason, people were coming and they're reaching out in faith, just like the woman whose, whose faith had made her well, now there's a whole group of people coming that way. It's not, it's not an especially strong kind of faith. You know, sometimes faith, God asks us to, to climb a mountain, to, to endure incredible hardship, incredible suffering, all, you know, for Him. This, this is the faith that just is willing to do this. 
You know, like this isn't a huge amount of faith, and yet it's a healing faith. If you're looking for healing, what you're, what you're looking for is satisfaction. That's what you're looking for, right? Looking for to be satisfied. And the way you find it is by reaching out in faith, even if you only have a little bit of faith. So reach out to Him with any faith you have. Reach out to Him with any faith you have. If you're longing to be truly satisfied, look to Jesus and reach out to Him. Trust that He is the one who can satisfy you. He's the only one who can heal. He's the only one who can give you your heart's desire. Our calling is to reach out in faith. It, it can be tempting to think that to, to really meet with Jesus, you know, you've got, you got to know all the right words to say. You've got to be a professional prayerer. You know, you gotta, you got to like really know how to study the Bible. You've got to be an expert in order to really meet with Jesus. Here's a group of people. Here's all they know. Jesus heals, so I'm going to touch him. That's all they know. And he rewards that kind of faith with healing. Jesus doesn't always ask for a mountain of faith. Sometimes he just asks for a mustard seed. And he's willing to satisfy that in the, with that kind of faith. Most important part of faith is not how strong your faith is. It's where you put your faith or who you put your faith in. Imagine if you, were, you, you took a, a wrong step and you fall, you fall off a cliff, right? I know that's like some people's repeated nightmares, so I'm sorry if I'm giving you like anxiety by just imagining that. But imagine that with me, if you will, falling off a cliff. And, and quickly approaching below you, you see a, a branch that is a potential to, to save your life. Now, the, in the split second thinking that you've got, you, you're not real confident in the branch. Like it doesn't look that good. You, you'd give it maybe a 10% chance of helping you. Now, imagine in reality, it will actually help you, but you don't know that yet. You just think, 10% chance this, land, this, this branch is going to catch me. How, how much faith do you have to have for that, that to save you? The only amount of faith you've got to have is enough to reach out and grab it, right? And if you do that, it's not going to just save you 10%. It'll save you 100%. Even if you weren't all that sure in it, if you just had enough faith to reach out, then it will 100% save you. Because you're not saved by the strength of your faith. But by, you're, you're saved by the strength of the branch, the strength of the thing that can save you. You might not feel like you are a spiritual giant, that you just have this mountain of faith. But if you got just a little, if you can reach out and say, Jesus, I, I need you to save me. I'm not even sure how that happens. I don't even fully, but I just, I just got this sense that you're the one I'm supposed to reach out to. If you have enough faith to reach out, he saves because it's not about how strong your faith is, it's about how strong Jesus is. You could be in the wilderness, you can be in the desert, and God satisfies. He provides. He cares for us. Not always in the way we want. That bread Jesus gave, they, they got hungry again, right? He, he will meet our needs in His way and in His time, but we can trust that He's good, and He has the power to save. When Jesus worked that miracle, when He provided bread and fish from just a few loaves and a few fish for thousands. He, he was reminding the people of what Moses had done in Israel. But he was also pointing forward to something else that would happen later in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 6, 41, during this miracle, it says he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And in Mark 14, 22, it's the night before Jesus is crucified, 
And it says the same phrase, the same two words. It says, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. When Jesus worked the miracle or took the Lord's Supper, the disciples had to remember the time he did it for the 5,000. They remember when Moses, God through Moses, provided for the food, the food for people on the desert. And now here's Jesus, the night before he's crucified, taking bread and he's breaking it. He blessed it and he broke it. So that the next day when he went to the cross, people would recognize that his body had been broken so that we would get the blessing. When you, when you look at a, a piece of bread, if it stays whole, you, you don't get any nourishment from it, right? You'll, if, you just, if you just stared at food forever, you would eventually wither up and you would die. But if the bread is broken, you'll be blessed by it. One's got to be broken, one or the other. And Jesus said, I'll do the breaking. I, I, I'll be broken so that you'll be blessed. When we think of Jesus feeding all the people out there in the wilderness, we think of him on the cross how he was willing to be broken in our place so that we would be blessed, we would be satisfied in him. You can look anywhere else you want, and it may satisfy you for a little while, but ultimately we will only be satisfied by the good shepherd who came and was broken for us so that we would be blessed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for giving so much to us. Lord, we confess that our hearts are so prone to wander. We look everywhere else in the world other than you to be satisfied. And so, God, we come to you today pleading for forgiveness, pleading for your grace, and pleading for satisfaction. God, we, we don't feel like spiritual giants. We feel so inadequate. And so, God, we come to you with just an ounce of faith to say, we need you. We're reaching out to you in faith. We want to see your glory. We want to see your majesty. We want to see your power. And we long for you to satisfy us. God, fill us with your spirit. Give us opportunities to worship you, to be in awe of your glory, to sing your praises time and time again. Because, God, we know that being with you, that's, that's what will satisfy us. Lord, we need you for all a host of reasons, for all kinds of different needs that are represented throughout this room, and joining us online. God, so many people that have so many needs, and we know only you can deeply and truly meet those needs. So we come to you today, God, asking for your salvation, asking for your satisfaction. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.